A dispute over barricades escalating into mass conflicts, violence and chaos rising out of control in a neighborhood in China, crowds ripping down barricades, police officers rolling onto the scene. And it's not a standalone incident, a man in black attacking passerby with a kitchen knife, a barbershop owner killing his customer after an argument. What do these incidents say about the state of Chinese society? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany today. First, we zoom in on a mass conflict that broke out in China over the weekend. Hundreds of local residents tore down barricades and amid scuffles, a man was shoved onto the ground. It happened during a conflict in Chengdu residential compound. The clash begun with a dispute over whether to keep barricades in place inside the residential area. The situation later evolved into physical conflicts. <laughs> Videos circulating on the internet show police officers arriving on the scene at night. The next day, a man in black attacked passerbys on the street with a kitchen knife. The incident happened in Chongqing, another big city in the region. The man was beaten and restrained by a group of people with wooden chairs. Similar violence broke out in other parts of China. In northern Jilin, a barber shop owner killed his customer over disputes about hair coloring. In southwestern Fujian, a man killed two people and injured one. A Chengdu resident told Radio Free Asia that he thinks people are turning to violence to vent their anxiety. The resident surnamed Yang said many people lost their source of income during the past three years of pandemic lockdowns. The reeling economy combined with China's strict authoritarian rule have exacerbated hatred between people. To the point that small disputes can escalate into mass violence or conflicts quickly. Is the U.S. close to a war with China? A top U.S. general says Beijing is fully convinced that conflict is looming and is grooming that rhetoric among its troops. Here are more comments from his interview with the government executive media group last Friday. Chairman of the Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said Beijing's conviction stems from Marxist determinism. But the general said that's not what Western countries have in mind. He noted that war with communist China is not inevitable and could still be prevented. That would require the U.S. to stay strong relative to China and pragmatic and cautious going forward. Milley said Chinese leader Xi Jinping has already set a time frame for an army attack on Taiwan for the year 2027. While he hasn't issued the directive yet, the regime is building up its invasion capabilities. The general added that by that date, the U.S. would need to help Taiwan and create a perception in the minds of the Chinese decision makers that the cost of invasion outweighs the benefits. As a side note, Milley said AI and robotics will define the next great power war. These technologies will mean a decisive advantage for nations that master them. Former Taiwanese President Ma Ying-jeou has redefined the One China principle on mainland Chinese soil. At a Chinese university, Ma delivered a speech. Our nation changed its constitution around 1997. In its definition, our country was divided into two regions. One is Taiwan and the other one is mainland, all of which belong to the ROC. ROC is short for the Republic of China, Taiwan's formal name. It was established after the Chinese Civil War. The ROC had been formally recognized by the United Nations and many countries around the world as the central government of China, even after relocated to Taiwan post-war. That's until communist China replaced Taiwan in the United Nations in the 70th. 
Chinese state media did not report on Ma's statement. Ma's remarks directly contradict Beijing's stance on the issue. The Chinese regime considers Taiwan is part of its territory and has vowed to take it under control by force. Though the Chinese regime has never ruled Taiwan, Ma arrived in China last Monday, making him the first former Taiwanese president to set foot on mainland China. He said people from both sides of the Taiwan Strait are all Chinese, a statement that triggered some backlash in Taiwan. Next, we would like to take a moment to answer a question sent in by our viewers. That is, has mainland China ever ruled Taiwan? About 100 years ago, the Chinese Civil War broke out between forces of the Chinese Communist Party and Kuomintang, which is the ruling party of the Republic of China, or ROC. Now, after the war, the communists seized power and began to rule mainland China in 1949. The Kuomintang, on the other hand, fled to Taiwan and settled there. Since then, Taiwan has been officially known as the Republic of China. But cross-strait tensions have lingered for decades. At first, the U.S. recognized the ROC as the government of China, but all that changed amid shifting diplomatic relations during the Cold War. Washington eventually moved its embassy to Beijing. Despite China's efforts to isolate the island, Taiwan seeks to maintain relations with Western countries. The island remains independently governed by its own constitution and elected leaders. Taiwan facing more than just military aggression from its communist neighbor. Another crisis may also be brewing thanks to the island's energy dependence. What can be learned from the Ukraine war? And where is the balance between reality and ideology? Tiffany sat down with Kelly Sloan, senior fellow in energy and environment at the Centennial Institute for more. How do you see this push for renewables and this reliance on the Chinese market impact, say, the current so-called Cold War or potential hot war between the U.S. and China, and especially with Taiwan caught in the middle? How do you see all of this playing together? Well, there's a lot of elements there. First of all, obviously, if if we are relying more on, on renewables, that means, you know, more uh, more solar panels, which require a lot of rare earth minerals, requires more uh, battery technology, which requires a lot of those rare earth minerals that we talked about earlier. And a lot of that is gonna be sourced from China. So we're gonna find ourselves sort of in, potentially in the same place we did with uh, with OPEC, where we are now gonna be dependent on a potential adversary for a large part, if not the bulk, but a large part of our electrical supply. And you look at it with, uh, with Taiwan, uh, you know, I was, when I was in Taiwan last year, the most one thing that really st- stuck out to me, we, you know, we, we talked a lot about the energy situation there and where they're getting their energy from and, you know, their solar pro- or their wind programs and, and the like. Uh, 95% at least of Taiwan's energy is imported, mostly from uh, natural gas. They're shutting down their nuclear program right now, which I believe is a mistake. Uh, but in terms of how that particular uh, conflict's going to start, I don't think... China even has to invade. All China has to do is blockade Taiwan and turn the lights off. You know, if, if they don't, if Taiwan does not have a, a, a robust uh, uh, domestic energy source, which nuclear is about all, all, all they have. They don't have that, you know, their own natural gas, their own coal. Uh, they have offshore wind, which uh, is a good source, but it's only going to uh, make up about 15% of their energy supply. Um, so when, unless they have you know some secure routes uh, of natural natural gas, right now most of their natural gas is coming from Australia. Some is coming from the Middle East, which has to go through China's string of pearls in the uh, in the Indian Ocean. 
which is not terribly secure, especially if hostilities break out. And what little bit they may be getting from the United States, since we have no LNG terminals on our West Coast, is all coming from, from Texas and has to go all the way through the Panama Canal and then across the Pacific. So it wouldn't be a terribly difficult job for uh, PRC to blockade uh, Taiwan and essentially turn out, turn out their lights. Uh, and again, this all kind of ties into, you know, that we, I, I don't think we have a very realistic uh, energy policy, not just domestically to meet our own demand uh, while reducing our supply, but also in terms of helping our allies with, you know, their energy uh, energies. And especially if our energy policy is going to be giving money uh, to uh, communist China at a time when you know they could potentially be uh, be looking at blockading and potentially invading uh, Taiwan. We, we I just don't think we have the yeah sorry I, I just don't think we, right now we have the st- a strong enough foreign policy to really put all these pieces together and anybody that's really looking at at the larger picture of how energy policy impacts everything from our international relations to our uh, our own domestic economic survival. And Kelly, on that note, what would a good energy policy for the U.S. to begin with look like? Because it seems, especially after the recent Chinese spy balloon, there were fears of an EMP attack that could wipe out the U.S. grid. So it seems that's much more in the focus. What would a good policy look like? Well, I mean, the uh, the axiomatic, uh, simplistic answer would be all the above. But, uh, you know, it gets a lot more uh, complicated than that. I think the United States really needs to seriously consider uh, nuclear energy. Um, I think we do have to recognize that there are environmental consequences to coal and uh, and, and, f- and fossil fuels, uh, and we may need our fossil fuels for other other things. I think I don't think uh, electricity is going to uh, completely displace uh, fossil fuels for transportation, for instance. Uh, but I think we need a, a domestic energy policy that prioritizes nuclear, and I think we need a foreign uh, energy policy that prioritizes our uh, relations with our allies and takes a very realistic strategic look at how th- how things are shaping up uh, internationally and how our decisions are going to impact that whether it's in terms of our relations with uh, uh, China or Russia uh, or how we're going to support potential allies such as Europe or Taiwan and Kelly with all the different areas covered any final words well, I think we, uh, again, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's a matter of applying some realism to, to energy policy. You know, uh, shortly after the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, Europe was kind of slapped in the face with reality in terms of, ener- of energy policy. And, uh, you know, for years, they embraced a lot of these green technologies. Uh, you know, Germany, for instance, banned fracking, it banned coal, it banned nuclear, uh, which pretty much left it with uh, imported natural gas, which they from Russia, which they uh, kind of did quietly. Well, when that was cut off, they were suddenly left with nothing, and which is why Germany, even with a minority government that includes the Green Party, has been delaying the shutdown of their nuclear plants, has put coal plants back online. At the end of the day, uh, you know, reality has to trump ideology when it comes to energy policy, uh, because the consequences are just uh, uh, far too catastrophic to, uh, to bear. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
Great to be here. Thank you. Now it's official. The U.S. will be expanding its military presence in the Philippines. The country announced access to four new bases for the U.S. military. The locations are sending a signal that nations are banding together to conquer the Chinese Communist regime. The Philippine government on Monday announced the location of the four new bases. The sites include a Navy base and an airport in Cagayan Province, a camp in Isabela Province, and the island of Balabac near Palawan. U.S. forces are allowed to be stationed indefinitely. Locations are significant. Isabella and Cagayan are directly opposite Taiwan, while Palawan is near the disputed Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. The Chinese regime has built artificial islands there, equipped with runways and missile systems. The announcement came amid fury from the Chinese regime. They argued the new bases would provide U.S. forces with a staging ground close to southern China and Taiwan. Responding to the news, the Pentagon said it does not seek permanent basing in the Philippines. A spokesperson explained. And this is just one uh, additional um, aspect that will increase training between our two countries. These new locations will strengthen the interoperability of the United States and Philippine Armed Forces and allow us to respond more seamlessly together to address a range of shared challenges in the Indo-Pacific region, including natural and humanitarian disasters. Australia has banned TikTok from all federal government-owned devices over security concerns. Let's look at the details. The country has joined several other Western nations in the move, including the U.S., Canada, Britain, and New Zealand. The state of Victoria will also ban the app on state government-owned phones. The ban follows concerns that the Chinese regime could use the Beijing-based company to harvest data to advance a political agenda. TikTok said it was extremely disappointed by Australia's decision and added that it should not be singled out. The ban will come into effect as soon as feasible. Exemptions would only be granted on a case-by-case basis and with appropriate security measures in place. Beijing responded on Tuesday saying Australia should abide by the rules of market economy and fair competition. The first U.S. embassy in South Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu is Washington's latest efforts to boost its presence in the region and counter Beijing's influence. Vanuatu comprises about 80 islands and maintains diplomatic relations with the U.S., but severed ties with Taiwan two decades ago. The Chinese regime has beckoned most Pacific Island nations to shift diplomatic allegiance from Taipei to Beijing. And the most recent, the Solomon Islands and Kiribati in 2019. The Biden administration is now focusing on improving ties with allies after failed attempts at direct talks with Beijing. Washington also announced plans to open embassies in Kiribati and Tonga following the February opening of a U.S. embassy in the Solomon Islands. Why are these small Pacific Island nations so important? Back in the Second World War, these islands provided vital basing and anchorage for Japanese naval forces, boosting Japan's ambition to invade Australia and even the United States, which failed. The regulator of China's securities industry recently met with top executives on Wall Street, saying investors are welcome to expand to China. But months after lifting its COVID-19 lockdown and reopening borders, how's the country's economy holding up? We spoke to Antonio Gorsefo, China economic analyst, for his take. In May, you know what's going to happen? 10 million kids are going to graduate university. 10 million. They already have 20% youth unemployment. 
What's going to happen when 10 million more kids graduate university? Where are they going to find jobs? More on that after the break here on China in Focus. China's top securities regulator met with big wigs from Wall Street Friday, saying international investors are welcome to expand in China. But how is the country doing economically since its reopening? We spoke to Antonio Grisefo, China economic analyst, for his perspective. Let's dive in. Antonio, kind of zooming in on the economy, it seems, with this Xi and Putin meeting especially, right? China's been doing this diplomatic dance in a way. They have been helping Russia economically, but with those sanctions or even secondary sanctions that could be levied on China, it seems China's own economy has been taking quite a hit. You have a piece out recently called China's economic recovery is uncertain. So what are you seeing in that aspect? So while the rest of the world is raising interest rate, while the rest of the world is raising interest rates to combat inflation, China keeps cutting rates, cutting reserve requirements because they're trying to free up liquidity in their banking system, in their financial system, increase the uh, quantity of, of cash that's available to expand the economy. Now, this is a very, very unsound way to expand the size of the economy. And it has to be paid for later. So China already has debt equivalent to 300% of GDP. Its debt is just growing. And the other problem with China is that they usually try to spend their way out of economic downturns by doing um, infrastructure investment. Well, before, when you didn't have high-speed rail everywhere and you didn't have highways and, and things everywhere, when you built a high-speed rail or you built a, a highway connecting two cities, suddenly both cities got richer because now they're connected and they can trade and things like that. Well. There's no place left to build in China. You would now be building highways to nowhere. You'd be building high-speed rail to nowhere, which is really what they're doing. I mean, you, you know, the, the ghost cities, that's a famous thing that they do in China is that they build these ghost cities, these developments that no one's ever going to live in them. They're never going to be rented. They just build them because it puts money into the economy. They're doing that now with, with, with highways and dams and, and, and whatever other infrastructure. And so basically, this is just China creating more debt, uh, building infrastructure that is never going to turn any sort of a, a return, any sort of a profit, if you will. It's not going to have a, have a tremendous impact on the GDP. In May, you know what's going to happen? 10 million kids are going to graduate university. 10 million. They already have 20% youth unemployment. What's going to happen when 10 million more kids graduate university? Where are they going to find jobs? Now, I know that they're recruiting a lot for the Communist Party. I know that the civil service is being expanded. But again, this is not a sustainable way to create uh, employment for people. And it's not really contributing to GDP. If you're just going to hire all these people and the government's going to pay them out of the government payroll, how? Funding and through debt. So I see the Chinese economy really struggling this year. Um, the other issue is that demand for everything is still down in the rest of the world. The rest of the world is still facing essentially somewhere between recession and stagflation that's keeping consumer demand down. Um, so Chinese products aren't in demand as much abroad. Um, a push for nationalism within China is driving a lot of uh, foreign brands out of China. They're not making the money they were making before. 
uh, general downturn in the Chinese economy. Uh, they could never get the consumers to consume in China the way that they did and the way they do in the United States. You know, she's tried to have this consumer-led economy for a number of years, and then he did the COVID lockdowns for three years, and that squelched any attempts to do that. I mean, they're still trying, but it's just, just not going to happen, particularly with uncertainty. So I see the Chinese economy struggling again this year. And Antonio, speaking of this, say, economic uncertainty that's unfolding in China right now, here in the U.S., Senator Josh Hawley is introducing a bill that would cancel the country's most favored nation status within two years. So if this actually passes, what would be the impact on China? I really, really wish that this would pass. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that comes up every couple of years or months or something somebody talks about it and, it and it just doesn't go anywhere unfortunately but uh yeah i know it's really important unfortunately uh when president biden was the vice president he was instrumental in helping uh china to join the wto and in the united states granting most favored trading nation status to china and that means that the united states theoretically cannot have discriminatory tariffs against China that we can only, we have to treat China the same as we treat any other trading partner uh, who is also covered under under that agreement. So that's basically what, what the rule says. It says you're allowed to have tariffs, but then you have to have them against everyone. Or if you have quotas, they're against everyone. But um, in this case, it really hamstrings the U.S. ability to restrict trade with China. Now, we are ratcheting up to the credit of the previous administration and the current administration. We are ratcheting this up on both U.S. outbound investment into China, Chinese investment into the United States, trade with China. The chip ban is, is huge. I mean, we're doing a lot of good things, but it's a bunch of piecemeal things. And I really wish that we would do something big like removing their most favored uh, trading nation status. Uh, just outright banning imports from China, outright banning investment in China, something along that aligns. Because every step of the way, you know, we're, 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 we're tightening this or that or we're making this or that better. But meanwhile, there's another problem over there. It's another problem. Over there. It's like playing the whack-a-mole game. You know, you knock down this, this mole and then that one pops up over there. And the problem is that all these profits that China's earning, all this money that they're getting from U.S. investors, and it's just going back into weapons, ultimately. It's funding their technological advancement, AI, uh, new age weapons, new age technology, space wars, all these things. And uh, if we can cut off their money, they won't be able to do it. I mean, it's the same concept of what we're doing to Russia. We're hamstring Russia economically so that they can't wage a war. Unfortunately, they have their buddy China feeding them money through the back door, right? And if we could cut that off, that would be great. Antonio Graceffo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. And that's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Mon. If you have any feedback for the show or something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow.